today. Uh, young people can make their way out to junior church now um, with uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hill and uh, Mrs. and Miss, Mrs. and Miss Weyerbach. <laughs> um, there you go. The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter number 17. Um, you guys hear me okay? I feel like I got a little bit of a ring, but is it bothering you? No? no? Is it good, Oscar? Sounds good? One, two, three, four? No? Okay, you're not going to complain about it, then I'm going to say you because I, I can hear myself fine. Um, uh, this morning I entitled this morning's message, The Power of Passion, The Power of Passion. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I began this morning by even thinking about what, what is passion, you know, um, anybody give me a one-word definition of what, when I say passion, what does that mean to you? Anybody? Bama. Say that again. Bama. Bama. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lane Kiffin. Uh, okay. Uh, yes, Russ? All right, I'm going to make that one word by hyphenating it. Strong feelings. Well, that's good. Uh, you're right. Um, I, I, I thought just the word love, you know. Keegan, you got a one-word thing? This will be good. Loving others, right on. All right. Um, you know, passion is a combination of a lot of different emotions and actions. Um, I was thinking as I was thinking about this, I was in the backyard the other day and I noticed the the squirrels. Now I have a squirrel that lives on my back patio that you know I would like to uh, passionately get rid of. Thank you, my better half. I'd like to passionately get rid of that squirrel. Um, get a cat. Oh, well, then I then I'd need more ammunition. Oh, that's all that means. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> get a dog. There you go. That's a good answer. Um, but um, the squirrel, you can tell uh, how passionate they are about their activity. And I was thinking, you know, that that, that must be going to be a really cold winter because the squirrels are really busy, you know, gathering more nuts than usual. I heard one guy say he knew that was true. They were gathering more nuts than usual because yesterday his sister disappeared. <laughs> um, that's for my sister who turned 60 in a couple days. That's right, sis. You're probably watching this. And uh, happy birthday to you. 60. There's something about 60, you know? Is that, is that young? Is 60 the new 30? Oh, it is? All, the, all you folks that have, you're, I'm getting some yays on it. I am, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic, uh, you know, I don't know. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we get passionate about. Uh, I, I, I wrote down some sort of passion about other people, you know, maybe like when you're dating someone or maybe when you get married or, as DT mentioned, a sports team or a hobby, you know. But this morning in church, you know, I, I, I was going to do this to you, but I decided not to. Uh, DT already helped me out. You know, I thought, I wonder how long it would take before even inside a church that when it came to the term passion, that our faith or the person of Christ would be mentioned. I don't know. I guess maybe it depends on what church it is. I didn't want to see what y'all where y'all would land, so I didn't. <laughs> I just didn't give you the quiz. You know, and then you, no, I'm, I have every confidence somebody would have said that. You know, probably one of the kids. They're spiritually minded, but um, our faith and passion. 
And this morning I want to look a little bit at this idea of the power of passion, and we're going to look into the life of the Apostle Paul, and I find Paul to be a very passionate individual, and there's a a verse in Acts chapter 17 that has always been very impactful on me, and last week's sermon, and this morning a little bit, and probably next week, I'm going to be sharing some things that as Jen and I were gone on vacation a little bit, um, and I have more time to think about things, observe things, uh, the the next couple weeks I'm probably going to bring some more of, of those experiences Uh, into what I want to share with you out of God's Word. But in Acts chapter 17, our text is going to be in verse number 16. So Acts 17, verse number 16, the Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He had a stirred spirit. His passions were raised. Now, we know in history here, Paul is on his second missionary journey, you know, where he left uh, Jerusalem and went all the way around in different places. This is the second time he's on his journey, and he's traveling with Silas and Timothy. We know in Acts chapter 17 that just before this moment, he had been in the city of Thessalonica, there in the area around Macedonia, Greece, over in that area, and Paul had a great ministry there. People were getting saved, but, but the adversaries stir up a riot, and Paul is pretty much run out of town. So they send him from Thessalonica, and they send him to a town called Berea, where we meet the famous Bereans that studied the Bible to see if these things were so. And he goes to Berea and begins to have a prosperous ministry again. And the, the same troublemakers, they found out he was at Berea, so they left Thessalonica, came to Berea, stirred up a bunch of problems, and, and Paul gets run out out of town again. So the believers decide that maybe the best thing to do is leave Timothy and Silas in Berea and get Paul out of town to lay low for a little bit. And that's why in our text it says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, that Paul goes to Athens, this bigger city and a famous city in Greece, and he's waiting there for, for Silas and Timothy to come rejoin him. And while he waits on them, his passions are stirred, and we see the power of passion. You see, Paul was supposed to be there, kind of a little R&R. And I think after you, you, you preach the gospel and you see a lot of people saved and come to faith in Christ, and, and, and then there's opposition, and you, you, maybe you go through some persecution, and then you go to the next town, and it happens again. I don't know. To me, I think the guy kind of deserved a little bit of R&R, right? But... That's not what God calls him to do, and his passion overrules what I think the other believers had admonished him to do. So this morning, I want to look at Acts 17 in this story, and we'll go through this uh, relatively quickly. And I want to share with you the power of passion and how it manifests itself in the life of the Apostle Paul. Number one this morning, I want you to see the presence of passion, and that's found in our, in our text verse in verse 16, where the Bible tells us that Paul's spirit was stirred in him. That, that, that he had this passion inside him and it was stirred when he looked around and he sees this whole city, the city of Athens, committed to idolatry. Now, if you know anything about Athens, if you know any world history, you know that Athens has long been considered the center of man's wisdom and philosophy, the center of paganism and mythology, and it was a town that was full of idolatry. Now, this would be a very tough crowd to bring the gospel to. These were the intellectuals of the area, of the region, and uh, many of them very committed to the different gods and goddesses of, of paganism or, or philosophy. And I thought to myself, 
how often do I really look around and observe where we are as a nation and a culture? And one of the things, when you get on a, on a cruise ship or maybe you go to some place some, that's full of a crowd, you look around and, and does it ever stop in us and think, like at a football game where hundreds of thousands of people are gathered or an or a, or a international soccer game, you know, that the, the, the crowds are very passionate or <laughs> I put it in my thing just so I could be a little absurd, or a Taylor Swift concert in the rain in Nashville, um, you know, one of those, you look around, all those people, and every single one of them has a soul. And as a nation, when I look around today, I think I can, and we can identify that we're living more and more like New Testament times, that we live in a nation, unfortunately, that is given pretty much wholly to idolatry. And I ask myself, is there any passion in there? Is our spirit stirred at all? And like Athens, America has become a, a, a place there's all kinds of knowledge, quote-unquote, just like Athens. Now, a couple weeks ago, Jen and I were in, in Canada. Actually, we went up to Boston first, and then we sailed out of Boston and went to Nova Scotians and places up in Canada. And one of the things that Jen and I both were really um, impressed with, I guess you'd say, when you walk around downtown Boston or whether you go to Quebec or Sydney, Nova Scotia or Prince Edward Island, um, we saw these. I want to show you some churches. Isn't, is that not a beautiful church? I think this one was in Boston, I believe, right? Um, let me show you another one. Uh, that is Prince Edward Island, I think. You know, look at that church. And, and there were several of them. Matter of fact, you can see another steeple just off the edge of the screen over here. I had one picture where you can pick up like four or five. Here's another one. That was in Quebec City. Um, let me give you another picture. This, this is back in Boston. And another thing that just astounded me, because Boston's a blue city, a liberal city on balance, right? And... Here's this statue that is put up in honor of a guy named, you, I know y'all can't read it from that, she got really good eyes. Um, his name is Philip Brooks, and the first line under his name is Preacher of the Word of God. I thought, man, I can't believe they left these up in Boston. We tried to keep the Ten Commandments up here in Montgomery, and that didn't work out for us, did it? Um... the heritage of the passion for faith in Christ is rich in our heritage. But unfortunately, as a nation and Canada before us has wholly given themselves to idolatry. We, we were in Prince Edward Island in Canada and we took a tour bus uh, to go out to see Anna Green Gables. Um, I had, we had some live stream problems. I don't know. Are we live streaming now? I don't know. Um, but maybe next week I'll bring some more uh, Anna Green. I have more pictures from Anna Green Gables. I had more people come ask me about those pictures. You know, it's like I preach a whole sermon. People listen to nothing. All they heard was Anna Green Gables. That's all they cared about, you know. 
So I thought, well, we got a couple more. Plus, I don't think we were online last week live when I showed the ones we showed last week. So the online audience feels like they were robbed. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll bring, um, you know, I'll, I'll bring some, some more of those uh, for you. But we were on this bus trip to go out to see Anna Green Gables home and this kind of stuff. And they took us around different places in Char Charlottetown and whatever. And one of the things that they took us by frequently were these different churches. And they would tell us about these, these famous architects that came over from England or came over from France and designed these churches and the, why they were designed the way they were, and which was really fascinating. Now, our tour guide in the middle of this says in a kind of a matter-of-fact uh, kind of way, she says, you know, one of the problems we have here in Canada is we have too many churches and hardly anyone goes to church. Wow. So she goes on to say, kind of with, with joy, like, oh, but I got good news, all right? I got good news. And the good news is mo many of these churches are being converted into condos and townhomes and private residences. And then she goes on to say, and even one here in Charlottetown has been converted into a doctor's office. Yay. What I found completely ironic and I don't think was caught by her, kind of lost on her, was a couple moments later, she's telling us that Prince Edward Island, because it is a beautiful place, at least in the fall, <laughs> would want to be there in uh, November or December. Amen. Uh, but people are moving there like crazy and their population is almost doubled. So you're telling me your population is doubled, but you have too many churches. Do you see the problem? I, 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 it just grieved my spirit. And we see in America, mm-mm-mm-mm, like these churches that I show you these pictures of, a couple of them, Jenny and I, they, they have signs on doors, you're welcome to come in and look around. And you walk into these places and they just give you the spirit, they're just dead. Just like Jesus said, where he said, there's going to come a time where, you know, you got all these white, you know, they look all great on the outside, but in the ins in, inside are dead men's bones. Most of the churches, the ones we went in, seem far more like a funeral home. And unfortunately, in America, we're finding a similar deal. And even the evangelical church of America, I told you, Pastor Danny, where he's in, I told you I was going to do this. I didn't even, it's not in my notes, but I'm going to step right in. And I told him I was going to do it. You know, I knew I didn't plan it, but I guess I did. Maybe, maybe it was under there. We have guys, and you know, I, I'm seldom to call people out by name. It's not something I really enjoy doing, but sometimes because the church needs to be woke up, y'all need to know what's going on. I understand you got businesses, lives, you got your own deal. This week, I believe this week, might have just ended or this coming week, Andy Stanley, the son of one of the biggest mentors of my life, Charles Stanley. Andy Stanley's megachurch in Atlanta, Georgia, is holding the unconditional conference. You say, what is the theme of this conference? 
It's to tell the believing church of America how we should integrate LGBT and trans people into our churches. Who's speaking on his platform? The leaders of those movements. And thousands of people show up every week. They may have thousands of people, but that is a dead church. I'm thankful that his father in some ways is not here to, to see it. You see, as a nation, we've been giving ourselves over to idolatry. You say, we don't, we don't, we don't have little idols. All, yeah, we have idols. Again, y'all know I love sports. I have no problem with sports, but I got to tell you, it does bother me. It has bothered me for years And when the NFL and the NBA and all these places did the tough stuff they do. And I said to myself, I'm not going to commit myself to that any longer. I got to tell you, I walked away and I really enjoyed the freedom. But I wish we could get a, just a fraction of the passion. You see, there's the presence of the passion. Then the, as the story goes on, there's the action of the passion. In verse 17, in our story, goes on and says, Therefore, because he saw the city was wholly given to idolatry, Paul, therefore, disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. So he had passion that didn't just stay inside. The passion became action. Passion when it's legitimate passion, always drives action. You are where you are in your life because of the things you're passionate about. And I thought to myself, as I mentioned, you know, I, I, and I have no problem with this, but if I get a kick out of it, you know, how people will dress up in crazy, you know, they'll paint their faces to go to a football game and they have different songs they sing. You know, I was at the Red Sox stadium and um, in and, and, and the Red Sox station, uh, sta- stadium when we were in Boston, went to... There, they like to sing, I think it's in the eighth inning, they sing Sweet Caroline. Nothing can make you happier than singing that with 30,000 of your closest friends, you know, around Boston. And I thought, man, why can't churches, they say, well, we sung that song before. You know, they don't seem to mind that they sing that song at every single game. But the passion led to action. And it Paul did what he normally does. He went to the synagogue where the Jewish people were, and he talked to the Jewish leaders, and then it also says there in verse 17, and with the devout persons, that that basically means Gentiles who were seeking Jehovah as found in, in the Jewish Bible. And by the way, I think today begins Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. I think it starts at sunset tonight. Uh, so happy Yom Kippur to all of our Jewish friends. For us believers, it reminds us that uh, Jesus does is the not just the covering, but the washing away of our sins. And uh, But at any rate, he goes into the synagogue and starts interacting with them about the Old Testament scriptures and declaring to them that Jesus, in fact, was the Messiah. This is the same approach that Philip uh, uses earlier, the deacon Philip in, in Acts chapter number 8. Remember when uh, Philip runs into the, to the Ethiopian man? The, and by the way, do you know that there's Ethiopian Jews in Ethiopia to this very day? We've, the Lord's allowed us to build two churches in Ethiopia. And uh, on my heart is someday to, to have one of Burhanu's men that graduate from his Bible seminary that has a passion to go to the Ethiopian Jews that we could be used of God to build a church for that particular guy to help reach our Jewish brothers, even those that are in, in Ethiopia. But so even in the book of Acts, you find the, 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 the heritage of this 
of faith in Ethiopia, and this Ethiopian eunuch, uh, uh, he was a leader, probably a governmental leader, and, uh, and, and Philip comes alongside him, and in Acts chapter 8, the, the story goes like this, in Acts chapter 8, verse 30, and Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, understandest thou what you're reading? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come down and sit with him, and the place which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh this prophet, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture to preach unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? By the way, this shows us that, that conversion comes before baptism, because Philip said, If if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so Philip, when he goes to find this Ethiopian man, he's reading out of Isaiah, and, and uh, Philip right away knew that passage, and you and I know that passage as well. Isn't it one of our favorites? One of my favorites. It's Isaiah chapter number 53, where the Bible says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces with him, from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. And Philip shows him how Isaiah wrote these prophecies some 700 years earlier and that Jesus of Nazareth was the one that fulfilled these prophecies who came and took upon himself the sins of the entire world and paid the price for all of our sin. You see, there was an action to his passion. And by the way, Paul didn't just leave it at the synagogue if you want to equate that to the church, it also says, and in the market daily with them that he met, that met with him. He took a couple of his buddies and they went down to the market where everybody goes. Everybody's got to eat, right? Basically, the point is that Paul took his faith with him everywhere he went and everywhere he went, he was conscious of the responsibility of sharing his faith. You know, sometimes I think people say, well, I never have an opportunity to witness to anybody. Well, really? Are you looking around? Number three, not only do we see the action of his passion, but number three, we see the reason for his passion. And we find this in verses 18 to 31. It's a long passage, so I'm not going to read all of it to you. But in verse number 18, uh, the Bible goes on and says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others some, he seemeth to be a setter of some strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what, th what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. And so Paul's explaining his faith and some of the, the, the thinkers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they kind of want to know more. Now, 
I don't want to give you this Pastor Danny question more than it is me, uh, but I do have a simple chart here. If you say, what is Stoicism and Epicureanism? You know, Epicureanism was founded by Epicurus. Um, they believe the only real things are things we can experience with our five senses, and the ultimate good is seeking pleasure. You know, and then you got Stoicism found by Zeno, a Stoic, they believe that humans should not pressure the desires like power and wealth because these are dangerous. The ultimate good is seeking knowledge and showing no emotion toward pleasure or pain. So these two, they were very different. Basically, the Epicureans were the eat, drink, and be merry crowd. You know, if you like to party, you don't want to hang around the Epicureans because they were like, hey, the only thing that matters in this life is your five senses, you know. And the Stoics, they, they could either be one way or the other. They, they, they believed that the only thing that really mattered was your knowledge. Your body really didn't matter. So some of them were very ascetic. In other words, some of them were very disciplined. You denied the body and uh, and, and in Anytime you had a problem, the solution to your problem was found in yourself. Just get over it. And uh, I got to tell you, Epicureanism and Stoicism is alive and well in America today. Really is. Hadn't changed all that much. And, and so the, this, these people invite Paul to go to Areopagus, which is, is a mountain outside of Athens. And it's interesting that the Areopagus was also considered like a, 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 an elite group of thinkers. So you had the Areopagus that met at Areopagus. Are you with me? It's kind of like in the Jewish mindset, they had the Sanhedrin that made up from the Pharisees um, and the scribes and the Sadducees, made up the leadership group. Well, in Athens, they had the Areopagus, and it was the great thinkers. Some of them were Epicureans, some of them were Stoics, and they would, they would discuss things. But when they would have their important meetings, they would go to the Areopagus, which was this, this hill. Matter of fact, sometimes it's called Mars Hill. And here's a picture. If you went to Athens today, you can still climb up the top of Mars Hill where Paul, where this, where this event occurred. And um, it's, you say, why is it called Mars Hill and Areopagus? Well, Areopagus literally means Ares Rock. And you know, Ares is one of the gods of mythology of Athens, and he was the god of war. And in the Roman view of it, the god Mars was the god of war. So the Romans and the, the Athenians kind of said Mars and uh, Ares are the same person. So the Romans referred to this more as Mars Hill, and the Greeks considered it more Areopagus, you know, so whichever. But um, they would go up there and they would have these big discussions. So they bring Paul up there, and basically Paul tells them his framework about Jesus or his framework of Jesus, and I love the fact that Paul interacts with them based on their understanding. Sometimes Christians tell me something like this, well, we just got to know only what the Bible. Now, we need to know primarily what the Bible says, but we need to understand the other thinking sometimes of our day if we want to be effective in communicating with people around us. And Paul does this, and he, ta- he uses the example of a, of the, of a statue of, to the unknown God, and, and Paul tells, hey, I walked right by that, and y'all are seeking God, and I'm here to tell you who the real God is. And he goes on to tell that, that the God that they seek is the God of all creation. He made everything, that he made everybody of one blood, and that God himself ultimately identified with us by taking on flesh and blood, the, the person of Christ, and he explains to them that God is not made of gold or silver by man's hands, but he's eternally existent. And that one day the world will be judged by Jesus, the righteous judge. And he concludes his sermon, there's a little mini explanation, by telling them that the proof of all this 
that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he died by crucifixion, that he took upon himself the sin of all mankind, but he proved it all by rising again. Now, the claim of the resurrection is what changes when they're talking with him. They're kind of with him. They're kind of going, okay, okay, okay. And then Paul says, and then when, then they put him in a tomb and three days later, Jesus rose out of that tomb physically rising from the dead. That's what kind of caught their attention. They're like, what? Because one of the things that separates Christianity from any major world religion is that our Savior, we believe, is alive. He's, he's not buried in a tomb somewhere. Uh, he's not like the Eastern religions like Buddha, who they weren't even sure there was. They weren't even sure there was an they, No, our Savior, our leader died and rose again. And that claim kind of just blew them out of the water. Now I know, I've heard what, what generally when I share people that, they say, well, you know, a lot of people believe something that they'll become a martyr. You know, they'll die. You know, we, we saw people that drove airplanes into buildings because of what they believed which is why, you know, some of the secularists, oh, religion's all bad. The difference between that and what the Bible records very early after the events actually occurred is that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and all the, all the, all the disciples, they were in a position to know. They knew if Jesus was really alive or not. People will die for something that they believe is true. <laughs> but would they die for something they knew was not true? I don't think a lot of people would die for something they knew was not true. And yet you find that apostle after apostle and early church follower after early church follower who were in the position to know if Jesus really was alive, some of them who met him personally after his resurrection, they were in a position to know. And when you read the book of Acts, wherever they went, whether it was Jerusalem or Caesarea or Thessalonica or Philippi, wherever it was, the message that they had was that Jesus died for your sin, but he rose again to offer you eternal life. He conquered death. He paid the price for all your failures that are between you and God, the one that can, can make it right with God that took your place that took the punishment you deserved was Jesus Christ and then he rose again so that he could guarantee that when you die you can have eternal life as well this is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if Christ be not risen then our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain and I got no reason to be here this morning it's really how I feel about it. if I did not believe in the resurrection of Christ I told many of you I grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school, went off to Christian college, but it wasn't until I got to Christian college that I really got confronted with the idea, hey, this is my faith. Do I really believe this? Do I want to go do what many of my friends were doing, which is leave the faith and go up? Or do I really believe this? And the, the, the thing that I could not get around was explaining the resurrection of Christ. Couldn't get around it. And if Christ is really alive... It's a game changer. Billy Graham, many years ago, of course, you know, Billy Graham's with the Lord now, but what they call the preacher of presidents, you know, he ministered a, 
most of the presidents of this modern generation, but young Billy Graham was over in Germany after the end of World War II, and uh, a man by the name of Conrad Adenauer, and here's a picture of Conrad, he was the first chancellor of Germany following World War II, of West Germany again at that time, and um, he was a really effective leader. Matter of fact, uh, back when Time Magazine mattered, um, many, many years ago, he was Time Ma Magazine Man of the Year. Um, he, he was very influential in moving Germany to freedom and liberty and a capitalistic way of going. Um, but Billy Graham, in one of his books, tells the story where Billy Graham was meeting with him while he was doing a uh, revival services in Germany, and he began to talk with him, and he said that Conrad Adenauer suddenly turned to him very seriously, and he said, Mr. Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? And Billy Graham said before he could even answer his own, that question, he answered his own question, and Conrad Adenauer said, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, if Jesus Christ is alive, then there is hope for the world. If Jesus Christ is in the grave, then I don't see the slightest glimmer of hope on the horizon. Wow. He went on, Billy Graham says, he went on to say that, he goes, when I get out of office, I'm going to make one of the pursuits of my life to continue to seek the validation scientifically of the resurrection of Christ. You see, there's power and there's action, and there's a reason for our passion. If, if you don't think this morning that when you die, you're going to meet God, and specifically, if you don't think you're going to meet the risen Christ, then I guess your faith probably won't be all that important to you. But if you really think that's the case, if he was waiting in the side lobby here this morning, which if he wanted to, <laughs> Would that change the way we live a little? You see, in closing this morning, I want you to see that when it comes to the power of passion, there also has to be the persistence of passion. Notice in verse number 32 at the end of our story here, it says, And when they heard, the Areopagus group heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear more of this again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among which was uh, Dionysius the uh, Areopagite and a woman named Damarius and others with them. So when Paul tells them this and he gets to the point of the resurrection, many of them just begin to laugh out loud and they begin to mock him. Kind of happens today, doesn't it? Think of Richard Dawson or Hitchens or uh, Bill Maher. I mean, you, you can't mock any other faith in America except Christ. And sometimes, unfortunately, we've been very poor ambassadors. But you know what? It isn't about how good of a person I am or any of you are. It's ultimately, is Jesus who he said he was? But we got to have persistence in our passion. I love how these people got saved, this man and then this, this woman and uh, Dionysius. You know, he, he, was, he was a member. Now that makes sense to you, doesn't it? That he was a, what, what, what the Luke, the, the writer of Acts, is telling us is that Dionysius, the Areopagite, in other words, he was a member of that council. 
So one of the most brilliant thinkers of all of Athens, when he considered what Paul had to say, eventually believed. You know, one of the misnomers that sometimes our critics have of us is they think that most Christians are a bunch of simpletons. I guess they've never read J.K. Chesterton or, you know, C.S. Lewis. Uh, you know, we can reach smart people too. But you also have to understand that sometimes when you share your faith, you know, you're going to get mocked. I remember when I was in college many years ago, this, I was working at a, at a factory where they did basic making hinges for automobile industries, really 1940s machinery, really. And it was mainly women. There was only a few men, and I was working in a college program. That was back when Jimmy Carter was president. <laughs> um, couldn't find a job, so, that, you know, at any rate, that's another story. Some of you remember that. Um, but when they found out I was a Christian, them women were merciless to me. They wouldn't, at lunchtime, we'd go outside and then picnic tables. Either they wouldn't sit with me or the ones that would, I didn't want to sit with them because I couldn't, oh, the things they said. You know, sometimes you got you to gotta take some. It's okay. They mock Jesus, they're going to mock you, that's okay. But the Bible also says very clearly <laughs> in Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Ooh. Yeah, people can mock, and that's fine. But as a pastor who's been around a lot of death, I've watched a lot of people die, been alongside people when they took their last breath. I've never found too many of them who've just been laughing. I have found very few that really want to mock God at that point in time in their life. And sometimes we get deceived into thinking that, hey, I've got the next 50 years, I've got the next 80 years. You don't have a guarantee that you got the rest of today. And unless the Lord returns and you're a believer and are caught away, you, we're going to die. And as Martin Luther said, every man can do two things. He can do his own believing, but he's also going to do his own dying. That's why when Jesus spoke to the religious man in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus once again went to the Old Testament and used the story of Moses and the children of Israel when they were left out of Egypt and the children of Israel were complaining against God. They didn't like the food conditions, the water conditions, the heat conditions. They didn't like it. They were just complaining, complaining, complaining. And God sent a judgment of poisonous snakes among them and were biting them and they were dying. Then they pleaded for God, God, heal us, help us, God. And then God told Moses, make a brazen serpent and put it on a pole and put it in the middle of the camp and tell the people, if you want to live, go look at it. And whoever looks will live. Very simple. You could have enough faith to believe that what I tell you, that if you trust in looking at that serpent on the pole, that brazen serpent, you'll live. And Jesus said, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Jesus told Nicodemus, just like that brazen serpent, that was a picture of what I'm about to do. They're going to lift me up and put me on a pole. They're going to nail me to a cross. I'm going to take the judgment, which is what the brass pictured of God. I'm going to take and pay the price because I am sinless. I've done no sin. I'm a spotless lamb. I'm going to take the sin of the whole world. And anybody who's been bitten by the poison of sin, which may I submit to you is every single one of us that have the poison of sin, if we'll simply look, believe in Jesus, we can receive healing and eternal life. Hmm. You know, this week, as I mentioned earlier, we said goodbye and had a family in the church that's enduring the loss of a loved one. Um, I have a picture of Tommy. This is uh, Debbie Johnston's brother. And uh, I was up at the hospital this week and prayed with him. And uh, I've done this for a while. And I told Debbie, I said, unless God chooses to do a miracle, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't look good. And the next morning, sure enough, he, he passed on to the other side. And um, Tommy had an interesting um, testimony. As a young man, he attended a church service and heard the good news of Jesus Christ and that he was a sinner, but God loved him enough that he died for him. And if you believe in the, the finished work of Christ, his death, his burial, resurrection on his behalf, he could be receive forgiveness and eternal life. And he made that choice as a teenager. But as he grew into his later teenage years, as oftentimes happens, he got drawn into the things of the world and lost the passion of his faith and lived many years away from a fellowship with God. But life hits hard. You live long enough and somebody you love is going to have a terminal cancer. Somebody you care about is going to have some problem that can't be fixed. Maybe it'll be you that has life hits hard. And over the years, it finally broke him. And Debbie, if you know Debbie, Debbie's one of those people that doesn't mind witnessing. She's fairly fearless in her evangelism. I always appreciate that about Debbie. Um, and for years, he knew that Debbie was living her faith and he was not and they would talk and um, a few years ago he had called her and said, Debbie, I'm really in a bad way. I'm at a low point in my life. And she said, well, you know what you need to do. You need to get things right between you and God. You, you, you need to ask God to forgive you and get back passionate about your faith. And you know, he did that. But he had a lot of health problems, so he couldn't get out of the house a lot. But, you know, if you ever watch on Facebook on our live stream, you can go back the last couple years. Just pick a face, one of our Wednesday night services or Sunday morning, even Sunday night. You'll see in the comment section Tommy's name, Tommy Zafina, 
with the clapping hands thing, or he'll write a little thing, and that was really powerful. He was a great encouragement to me, and I'm sure Pastor Danny, for those of us who teach online, for the last two years, he couldn't get enough because of the power of passion. You got it? Hope you do. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the teaching of your word this morning. Um, Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that doesn't know they're on their way to heaven, if they were to die this very moment, uh, they're not sure that they would go to heaven. Lord, I pray that is right where they sit in their mind, they would acknowledge to you, yeah, God, I've made mistakes. I've done things wrong. But God, I'm thankful, as your word says, that you came and you died for me. You paid the price for what I did wrong. So that when I get to heaven, I don't have to stand before you as a sinner, but instead I can stand before you clean because of what Jesus did. And it's not a work. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And just like any other gift, it just must be received. My dear friend, I pray that you receive the gift that God is offering you this morning. And you just simply tell him, yeah, God, I know I've failed. But I'd like to receive that forgiveness and I'd like to receive eternal life, the promise that you made. That's all it takes. It's really simple. But how about it, believers? Are you passionate about your faith? Do we recognize that we're living in a culture that's overwhelmed and wholly given to idolatry? And does it stir in us a passion to tell somebody the good news? To be willing to pay the price of maybe being mocked a little bit, have people laugh at you. But also to see lives changed and hope given to those that are hopeless. Lord Jesus, I pray you'd seal decisions this time, the invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand? We're going to sing a verse invitation. Maybe you have some more questions.